Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome once again as we continue on in the study that we're doing of the New Testament. We're working through it a chapter at a time. We're over two and a half years in. We started uh, way back with, way back with uh, Matthew. Seems like a long time ago now. I look back at the pictures like, man, it was a long time ago, two and a half years. Um, we did Matthew, we did Mark, then we jumped ahead and did John, then we did Luke, then we did Acts. And uh, out of the book of Acts, where we looked at it, while we were there in the missionary journeys of Paul, and so now we're ta tackling the letters that Paul wrote uh, in the order that we believe he wrote them, um, so we can stay sort of connected to the missionary journeys and uh, what was going on there. And so it, it has led us now, we've done the we did the Thessalonians, we thought that was first, first and second, and uh, now we're into 1 Corinthians, and we're looking through. Remember, these letters are written by Paul, um, because as we saw in his missionary journeys, uh, he would be in a uh, place for a little while, and then more often than not, he'd get run out uh, after being there. He'd get a church started, he'd get things in, in place, but then the jealous you know, religious establishment would run him out of town, or try and kill him, or whatever, and he'd have to go somewhere else. And so he left the churches going, and he would send his guys back to them routinely, but there would still be unanswered questions. Remember, church is a brand new thing. This is new. It's all new. Everything's new. And in Corinth, which was a, uh, we call it licentious area, um, in their, before they knew Christ, it was a really, really rough spot. They've got a lot of issues that have popped up. And we've been looking at the issues all along, and there's been a lot of them, and we've been dealing with them as Paul has in the process. It, it now moves into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We started last week in 1 Corinthians 12 with a discussion on the gifts and uh, the gifts of the Spirit and what that looks like and problems with the gift. And, and that primarily last week, um, the issue was that the Corinthians were very um, uh, sort of enamored of uh, people who seem to have certain spiritual gifts and, and they were viewing their uh, Christian life by their old pagan sort of ideas, uh, their pre-Christian ideas in, in their worship. And, um, and so Paul was saying you don't um, elevate people because of their spiritual gifts. If you really want to see if someone is spiritual or not, it's measured by how well they love. And, and uh, he worked through 12 in the process, saying uh, at the end of chapter 12, and now I'll show you the most excellent way. And, and that spirituality is measured, if you need to measure it, not on someone's giftedness in the spirit, but on how well they love. That's the bottom line. Um, and yet, even today, we're still often enamored by someone who seems to be very uh, spiritually gifted, and we, we lose sight of the, who, what's really going on, because that's not the measurement. The measure is how well they love. Because the Spirit gives gifts, and, and uh, he, he does that in lots of people, and it has nothing to do with their maturity level. Um, and that's where people get mistaken sometimes. Because brand new believers get spiritual gifts. That's what happened in Corinth. The Holy Spirit was at work, and you had brand new people who really had not a clue about their, they hadn't grown up yet in Christ, and yet were gifted spiritually, and so some things were going on that were causing problems. So Paul started to talk about it last week, uh, and I love 1 Corinthians 12. It starts out now about spiritual gift brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant. I love that. I love the way Paul would say things. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty, I mean, how, how would you like it if I start, uh, stepped up here and said, now, about this subject, I don't want you to be ignorant, because apparently you are. And uh, after you listen to me, you'll no longer be ignorant. <laughs> 
But so I couldn't get away with it. But Paul could. And uh, that's how he started. Look, I want you to understand about the spiritual gifts. You're, you're equating your, your previous understanding of what you thought spirituality looked like, and you're, you're bringing that into the kingdom, and it doesn't look that way at all. So that was the discussion in chapter 12. Today we're going to look in at 1 Corinthians 13. It's a very short chapter, which gives me an opportunity after we talk about it to introduce an idea about the spiritual gifts and to talk about them, and then to spend some time talking about love and what love looks like. So let's hop in, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 and following. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Blessed be the word of the Lord. So Paul's point is that love is the most excellent way. Love is the bottom line. We talk about it here all the time. Loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what it really is all about. That's what this walk is all about. When Jesus was asked what the most important thing was, the most important commandment, the most important idea to get, he said, this is it. And if I need to summarize it for you, love God. By your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We've been spending a lot of time talking about that. That's the, the, the foundation. That's what a, 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 a walk with Christ really looks like. And yet it's easy to sort of get sidetracked by some of the other stuff that goes along with walking in the kingdom. So true spirituality is unrelated to the gifts that a person may have from the spirit. Love is the indication of a person's true spirituality, and Paul gives us a fascinating list of what love looks like, and we're going to get back to that in just a moment because um, uh, it's a tough list. Um, when, you're, when you're trying to evaluate your spirituality against that list of love, you'll go, oops, if you're honest. I get stuck with love is patient. <laughs> I can't even dig into the rest. All right, before I do that, though, I want to have a little discussion about verses in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, and um, talk about the um, uh, idea of spiritual gifts in the church today and, and try and share with you some of the different positions. I'll share with you my opinion. Uh, you can do that as you will, um, but, but what I think happens in the process. And the verses that uh, are 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, 
where it says love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know a part, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, in the church today, there's a wide range of thought about where the spiritual gifts fit into the church today. And I'm going to give you a, three, uh, a few positions. Um, there are more than I could possibly go into in, in the concept, but these are things for you to ponder, and uh, I'll try and treat them. And I, I don't mean to treat any of them with disrespect, uh, because some of the people who believe in them are good, godly people, and, and, and it's okay. The, there are some things that are just we're going to not agree with fully, and I'm okay with that. And these, this is one of those areas. All right. One position is that signs and wonders ceased at the end of the apostolic age. That, that it all went away with the apostles. That when they were no longer in play, neither were the signs and wonders, the gifts of the Spirit in operation in the church. B.B. Um, Warfield writes in Counterfeit Miracles, pages 5 and 6, this. Everywhere, the apostolic, the apostolic church was marked out as uh, itself a gift from God by showing forth the possession of the Spirit and appropriate works of the Spirit. Miracles of healing and miracles of power, miracles of knowledge, whether in the form of prophecy or in the discerning of spirit, miracles of speech, whether of the gift of tongues or of their interpretation, the apostolic church was characteristically a miracle-working church. How long did this state of things continue? It was the characterizing peculiarity of specifically the apostolic church, and it belonged therefore exclusively to the apostolic age. These gifts were not the possession of the primitive church as such. They were distinctively the authentication of the apostles. They were part of the credentials of the apostle, apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Their function, i.e. healing and other miracles, thus confined them to distinctively the apostolic church, and they necessarily passed away with it. The possession of the charismata, i.e. the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit in the early church, was confined to the apostolic age. They, the miracle workings, were confined to the apostolic age and to a very narrow circle then. Now, without being disrespectful, this is the scripture that's used to support that position. That's it. <laughs> There's not one. It's, 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 it's just kind of an idea, but a lot of people believe that. And so I, it's fine, but it's not scripturally supported. That idea is not scripturally supported. It's very well, you know, if I can't, you can't find scriptural basis for it because we're, we're dealing in this letter with a church that's got the gifts that aren't apostles, apparently. And so it, it kind of begins to fall apart rather quickly. That's one position, all right? But it's a position that a lot of people have. The gifts don't operate anymore. It happened. It, it stopped. It was the apostles, and that's where it went. And a lot, I know we have a lot of church backgrounds here. I'm not trying to pick. I'm just saying uh, it's not the best theologically based position, although a lot of people believe it, and that's okay. The second position is that the signs and wonders ceased because they belonged only to the earliest centuries, and they ceased because they were no longer needed as divine credentials uh, since the church had been widely established and officially sanctioned, and the canon was completed. So a whole nother position is that the gifts aren't needed anymore. They were needed at the time to give, to, to give credibility to the church, but once the Bible was completed, then they were, weren't needed any longer. They just, so they went away because the church had been established by the time the canon was complete in the, like 400 AD. And so the gifts just sort of went away. 
Um, uh, in, in John MacArthur, who, who I love, wrote this book called The Charismatics, which he's not fond of, and he states the following. As we study the scripture, we find three categories of spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, there's the category of gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching pastors and teachers. These gifted men are called to be leaders in the church. Secondly, there are the permanent edifying gifts, which would include knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, faith or prayer, discernment, showing mercy, giving administration and helps, as listed in Romans 12, three through eight. Thirdly, there were temporary sign gifts. These were certain enablements given to certain believers for the purpose of authentic, authenticating or confirming God's word when it was proclaimed in the early church before the scriptures were penned. These sign gifts were temporary. Their purpose was not primarily to edify, although sometimes edification did occur. It did occur, occur, pardon me, occur. The four temporary sign gifts were miracles, healings, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. These four sign gifts had a unique pur purpose, to give the apostles credentials, to let the people know that these men all spoke the truth of God. But once the word of God was inscriptured, the sign gifts were no longer needed and they ceased. The gift of miracles and the gift of healing were both special sign gifts given for the single purpose of confirming God's Revelation, that's on page 131. The, the proof text, and the reason I bring that point up, is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, what, what that position takes from that reading is the statement, which is when, uh, when the perfect is come, that which is in part is done away with. When the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. That which is perfect. And the position interprets that which is perfect to be the canon of Scripture. That when Scripture was finally canonized, like I said, it was 350-something, three, 360-something. This is it. This is the Bible. That the point is that at that point, once we had the Scripture, then we didn't need the, um, some of the gifts that, uh, of the Spirit. And uh, they say that, that in some, so some will be done, done away with, and they're referring in particular to uh, miracles and healings and stuff. And that's a widely held position in the church um, by Reformed and dispensationalist scholars. And their argument is this, that the word perfect in there is a neuter noun, so it has to refer to a thing, not a person. And since scripture is a thing and neuter and gender, it, it must be the perfect that Paul is referring to. Uh, th that concept actually fits pretty well with Paul's illustration in verses 11 and 12 about scripture and knowledge. Um, uh, these, the gifts that they were talked about were childish while scripture is mature. Um, these gifts give dim images and partial knowledge contrasted with scripture which reflects perfectly and conveys full on knowledge. Some of the weaknesses of the position are this, that, that while perfect is neuter, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be equated with another neuter noun. There are instances in scripture where a neuter noun is used to describe masculine and or feminine things or persons. One example is the word begotten in John 3, 6, which is a neuter reference to Jesus. Um, also the word spirit in and of itself is neuter, but it's clear from scripture that the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a he. And so there's, there's some room in there. Um, they also, when you, when you define the Bible, and you're trying to clarify positions like that theologically, you need to use the Bible um, to do it, 
But you also need to hold the Bible in context. And where they take that next thing about the, the scripture fitting the perfect deal is they reference 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 when um, scripture is defined as neuter there, which seems to solidify their case. The problem is the Corinthians would not have had access to 2 Timothy 3 because it wasn't written yet. So they needed to understand from what was written what it meant. And, and the answer, I believe, is found, the perfect is found back in 1 Corinthians 1.7 when we started uh, the whole chapter, the discussion, the letter, basically in the beginning, says this, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. To me, that's Paul is saying, everything you need is here until Jesus comes back. He's the perfect one that we're waiting for. Everything's still moving on as it should. So that's the third position, the signs and wonders, the gifts of the Spirit, that God is still giving his kids gifts to use for the common good, we've talked about that, for, for building people up, for lifting people up, for encouraging people, for moving into their lives. And uh, in, in, in my opinion, all of Scripture backs that point up. I mean, I, anything you point to to me looks like that's what's still happening. So, so obviously you know my opinion on that. But um, I do understand where other people pull their stuff, and I, I tried to give uh, reasons for why some people think the way they do, and it's okay. And, and there's a lot of church history that um, people rely on in their stance, and that's okay too. And do you know why it's okay? Because the most important thing is that we love each other. See, and that's why I needed to bring it up. We're going to disagree on some things in the church. But we need to be able to go, but you know what? If you love Jesus and, and you're pretty settled on the basic stuff, you know, I always say the, the basic common denominators are things like virgin birth and sinless life that Jesus led and that he went to the cross, that he, he literally died there and defeated death and rose again. Uh, if, if we believe in those things together, we have a lot of common ground. And then the other stuff is just kind of stuff. And if we're loving each other well, we can allow the spirit of God to work into our lives and figure it out. Um, and, and if we're not loving well, then we make all those things issues and we get very divisive. And, and we're not good in the world when we're divided. We're not, we don't help the situation. Jesus says the thing that'll get the world's attention is it when we're loving the way we're supposed to. Loving each other, loving God, loving our neighbors, loving ourselves. When that stuff's happening, that's when the world takes notice. Apart from it, they're, they're not that impressed by our stance on some of these other things. So, so I say all those things, saying that it's okay for people to believe those things, and, and we're going to love them, and, and it should be okay for us to try and marshal through what we believe and, and do it kindly and not, you know, it, it's just the way it is. So love um, is, is a very cool subject, and that's what I want to talk about with that in mind. So you've got a lot of church history and theology at that moment, but you can chew on that and go watch it online if you didn't get it all. Paul tells us as he starts in the love things, the first thing, and it's, it's a big sticker for me, that love is patient. Love is patient. That's the first sort of clarification about love. And then um, what he does, he, he says love is patient, then he says love is kind, and then he breaks it down and he starts saying some things that, that love isn't, and he's he broken them nicely for us so we can learn about that. He says love is patient, and then he defines it for us at the end of verse 4. Um, because what patient love is, it looks like is this, that that love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and it isn't proud. That's what patient love looks like. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and it isn't proud. So when you're working on being patient, which I think most of us need to work on, and we could go into lots of illustrations about why, um, 
So that's what we need to work on. Okay, I don't want to be envious. I don't want to be boastful. I'll be lifting myself up, and I don't want to be stuck in pride. I need to walk in humility. And, and I think God is very good in that he... Um, have you experienced that when you're not doing that very well, he usually brings it to your attention? Through, you know, someone will say something or something, and you'll, you'll get that you're just not loving very well. And, and, and that's... I always look at that as God's mercy, that he's teaching us that we're not loving very well by catching us in our mess. And uh, it doesn't feel like fun, but it really is it's a good thing. And so, so we have those things to think about. Not being envious, not being boastful, not being proud. Um, and, and that's what patient love looks like. And then he says love is kind. And, and uh, what does kindness really look like in the process? And he defines that too. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Very fortunate that he defined this stuff. This is what kind love looks like. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Do you ever want to go at this point, Paul, seriously? Because <laughs> it makes me angry easily. See, kind love, first off, isn't rude. It's not rude. And, and we live in such a rude culture and, and it impacts all of us. And we have to be very careful because we, not only are we not patient sometimes, we, when we're not being patient, one of the ways we take it out on people is by being rude. And I don't even know if we catch ourselves, if we're even aware of how rude we are sometimes. Um, there's a thing that, I know you've heard me say this before, but if you ever start a statement with, I don't mean to re be rude, but, you're about to be extremely rude. And if someone says to you, I don't mean to be rude, but, then you know my response to that? When you hear that coming, you need to go like this. And if they go, because you're actually doing them a favor. You're helping them to love well. <laughs> That's kind of a stretch, isn't it? I'm, I'm being rude in, in effect. But... That's, that's how we justify rudeness nowadays, if we, if we even justify it at all. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but it's not, it's not kind, and so, so don't do it. It's not self-seeking. And again, our culture is so bent on self-seeking that we don't get how rude that is, but uh, we're surrounded by it. But we need, to, we need to be careful in the process, in our kindness. And then it's not easily angered. That's a big one. Because I think because we're so hurried and busy all the time, um, we get angry very easily. Now, it doesn't say that you, you should never get angry because there's an appropriate anger. There's, there absolutely is. Um, but we get angry way too easily. And that's what Paul is saying. That's not love. You know, it should take a lot to get you angry. It should be a big deal when you get angry. It shouldn't be the little petty stuff that most of us get angry over. It should be something major that, that gets you there. And it should be something that, you know, is... You know, when Jesus got really angry, it was because they were doing stuff in the temple and making, you know, they were making it a mockery and they did stuff like that. Or they were being, the religious people were being so off the point and the track that you'd see Jesus get angry at that. But that's all. He didn't get angry at the rest of the stuff. You know, you watch Jesus, he only gets angry at religious people. That's quite a lesson, isn't it? You never see him get angry with sinners. So I'm glad I'm a sinner. Like you. It keeps no record of wrongs. Boy, that's a big one, too. Um, that's one of our favorite things. We love to keep records of wrongs. Some of you have years' worth of records. <laughs> I 
I mean years where you can dig them back 20 years if you got to. It just depends on the moment. You're holding it. Yeah, but do you remember when? Seriously? <laughs> no, I don't recollect. Well, this is what you did. How do you even remember that? But, but, but we're good at that, aren't we? But it's not kind. It, love, isn't that something? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps none. You know, one of the things I love about all of these um, verses is that this is how God loves us. When you put it in that context, isn't that great? That God is patient and that God is, is, is kind and that God doesn't keep records of wrongs. Don't you love that? You know, some people, let me toss out another point. Some people labor under this thing that at the time of uh, their judgment, God's going to review every horrible thing they did and they have to bear it. I, don't, I think what you did, every harm is, is, is seen in the cross now and forever. And that what you do in front of God is he kind of looks and sees how you did with your walk and the things and the talents and the gifts that he gave you. And there's some rewards that get handed out. But that's stuff that you did. You, if, you're, if you're sweating the judgment, the final one, that the big videotape's going to run in your life, it got taken care of at the cross, guys. Let that one go. You're free from that in Christ. Done. That's done. Don't let that hang over your head. That's not how he loves. He keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, it goes on in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 and 8. Uh, through 8, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Um, th this is a huge thing. That, you know, it's about getting our focus on Jesus and, and onto the things that matter and onto the truth of him. And then um, verses 7 and 8 tie together just the way the other ones did. Verse 8 in particular says, love never fails. And then he defines that for us in verse 7. What does an unfailing love looks like? And again, these are God's qualities towards us too. How about this? Love always protects. Isn't that cool? Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. That's what love looks like. But it's only as we kind of receive and understand this unfailing love of God that, that we can even begin to try and express it to others. But that's what we're called to. It's that kind of love that we're called to. It's that kind of life that we're called to. That's what it means to be spiritual in the kingdom of God. To love well. To love like he does. Love is the most excellent way. And that's 1 Corinthians 13 for tonight. If you're watching by video or on television, thank you so much for watching and being a part. If there's anything we can do, call us, write us. Go to our website, keysvineyard.com. We'll see what we can do to bless you and help you. Pray for you. We're going to pray here tonight as a group. And that will be our evening.